1: It was the fastest rise and the fastest fall.
0: Welcome to episode 11 of The Great Fail, a podcast that examines the greatest success stories and their spectacular fails. What led to the demise of the most prolific people, brands, and companies? I'm your host, Deborah Chen, and this week we'll be looking at Atari. In April of 2014, the city of Almogordo, New Mexico, granted permission to excavate a legendary dump site. It had been rumored for years that there was a burial site that entombed hundreds of thousands of unsold video game cartridges and consoles disposed of by Atari back in 1983. Up until then, The whispers were that the unsold copies of what was regarded as the most highly anticipated game, E.T. the Extra-Terrestrial, had been such a colossal failure that Atari clandestinely ordered it to be treated as rubbish by the truckloads. Fast forward 31 years later, fans from all over the country were about to find out whether or not this urban legend was actually true. The excavators began to break ground as they dug through the various layers. And after hours and hours of digging, it was starting to seem like they would come up empty-handed. But suddenly, in front of them, what was finally uncovered amidst the gravel and dirt were thousands and thousands of cartridges. Among those and most prevalent were the E.T. game cartridges, dubbed the worst video game of all time. In fact, it was later thought to have led to the video game crash of 1983. And standing in the crowd was the man behind the legendary E.T. game, Howard Scott Warsaw, overcome with emotion. Alas, the rumor for so many decades was true all along. Welcome to the story of Atari, coded into existence in 1972, Game Over by 1984. Game Over. On a side note, this particular case study is on the rise and fall of the original Atari that was launched by Nolan Bushnell. It does not include anything after the company was sold to Tremel Technology, including most recently the announcement of its Atari hotel venture or its new VCS console, anticipated to be launched in mid-June of 2020. Today, the most popular video games are household names, League of Legends, Minecraft, Fortnite, Call of Duty. Smash Brothers, there are many. Once a niche field on the fringe of mainstream popularity, the industry has now evolved to a point where the same billionaires that own NFL teams are bankrolling esports franchises. And top Twitch streamers are racking up insanely lucrative contracts. With Sony, Nintendo, and Microsoft stranglehold on the console market for the past 20 years, it's hard to believe that at one time, Atari was the single most important name in video games. Atari kickstarted the entire home console gaming movement and literally paved the way for the explosion in 1970s and 80s when it launched the trailblazing Atari 2600. It was a pop culture icon and a galvanizing force within the industry and became so successful so quickly that it was clear that Atari was the captain of the video gaming ship. Back in the 1960s, there was an engineering student who gambled all of his tuition money away in a bad hand in poker. As he was enrolled at the University of Utah, he was forced to take a job at a local theme park, which included an arcade and carnival games, and there he worked to support himself when he finished off school. This carnival would also prove to be where he learned what it took to attract customers and keep them coming back for more. His name was Nolan Bushnell, and when he graduated in 1968, he took his love for arcades and moved to California. When he got turned down for a job at Disney, he took an engineering gig while he spent his time off working on an arcade video game. For his first prototype, he used a black and white television, which he found at Goodwill, and a dingy old paint can as the coin box. The game was called Computer Space, and the premise was to use a rocket to destroy alien flying saucers. The game never went anywhere, but instead of being discouraged, Nolan was convinced that he needed to go bigger. And he, along with his buddy, put up $250 each to launch a video game company called Syzygy. When he got to the California Secretary of State's office, it turned out the name was already taken. Nolan then provided the clerk with a short list of other names, allowing her the honor of picking one. The name she selected, of course, was Atari, and Nolan was in business. Around 1972, he hired Atari's first employee, an engineer by the name of Al Alcorn, to develop a simple ping-pong-style video game. Being the man of hustle that he was, Nolan did a bit of fibbing to get Al ready for the big leagues and told him that General Electric had signed on Atari to develop a game and it was Al's job to deliver. Since Nolan didn't think the first game would ever be a big hit, he wanted Al to get some batting practice. But through sheer skill from Al or crazy luck, their first game called Pong became a smash and put Atari on the map for diehard gamers. There was a significant amount of success followed by Pong. And despite competitors and knockoffs of the game, Nolan was a pioneer and knew that the key to success in the gaming space was to continually invent game after game to create something new and exciting. Another popular game during this time was called Breakout, in which you use a paddle to knock holes into a brick wall. Now seen as a classic of the era, you might be able to see it in some arcades still, even today. Interestingly, it was created by then unknown Atari technician named Steve Jobs and his friend Steve Wozniak. These golden years were marked by a constant stream of hit games, Riding the wave, Atari decided in 1975 that it would make a bold move to enter the home video game market. Nolan knew he wanted to create a home version of Pong, and his vision involved game cartridges that would be plugged into a player, aka a console. It was a deceptively simple yet expensive undertaking that led to the million-dollar question, how would Atari fund this concept? And Nolan did what many CEOs would do, which was to sell his firm to a rich parent company. In this case, the sale was to Warner Communications in 1976 for $28 million. Nolan stayed on as chairman and continued his vision for creating a home gaming system the same year that the company launched the Atari 2600. The console came with two joysticks, a pair of controllers, and the Pong game cartridge. It was a superb debut, and the company sold 30 million units that year, exceeding all expectations, making it a wild success. Here is Howard Warsaw Scott, the lead game developer at Atari, on why he thought the timing was ripe for a player like Atari.
1: The thing about it is that if you think about it, video games was really one of the first new mediums to arrive since television. I mean, music was there, and you had records, and records became tapes and 8-tracks and CDs, but they didn't really change the medium of music. But video games, it did a huge, huge thing, right? And what it did was it took television, which is essentially this passive sort of uh, thing that, that mesmerizes people and puts them to sleep and just locks them into their couch, right? Television watching is a very passive experience. And it took this passive conveyance and turned it into an active medium. Because video games are truly interactive. And movies and music, television, radio, all of these things, they're not interactive. They're passive media. But video games are interactive. And that was new. And it empowered people to use their TV instead of just stare at it. And I think there was something magical about that.
0: But behind the excitement and success, there would be internal glitches inside Atari that went beyond their console. Nolan was starting to butt heads with Warner executives. Warner wasn't an expert in the gaming space and Nolan was already pushing to do the next generation of the system. However, Warner, having already invested so much money in the 2600, wasn't about to create something that would compete with their existing product. What's more, there was another systemic issue that was rocking the foundation from within. Atari's programmers were feeling demoralized by the lack of credit and acknowledgement for the success of their games. From the millions of dollars that Atari made, the programmers were making less than $30,000 a year, and none of them were receiving the recognition they deserve for their crucial part in designing the company's hit games. These issues, along with the constant bickering and differences of opinions between management, led to sweeping changes within the company. And in 1978, that resulted in Warner forcing Nolan out and the exodus of some of Atari's biggest programmers who left to start their own ventures. One of those new companies became what we know today as Activision Blizzard, one of the gaming industry's titans. Even before that, though, it became a major competitor to Atari. Nolan's successor was Ray Kazar, who was appointed by Warner given his success at Burlington Industries. Does Burlington Coat Factory ring a bell? That's right. It's the same company. And as you would have guessed from that, he didn't have much of a gaming background. And under his leadership, many changes were made. For instance, the laid-back, creative vibe that had thrived under Nolan all but disappeared, replaced with rigid structure, cost-cutting, and the prize of efficiency above all else.
1: Ray Kazar, he was, uh... There's a chapter in my upcoming book that is devoted to Ray Kazar. And you know what I call that chapter? I call it Sympathy for the Devil. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> Because Ray Kazar is focused on as, you know, one of the key figures in totally ruining and trashing the whole video game industry back then. That's a reasonable take on a lot of levels, right? Ray Cazar did a number of things that really did ensure that things were going to fall apart. And he had no concept whatsoever of how to deal with technology and especially how to deal with the creators of technology, with engineers. He had no concept of that whatsoever, but he came by it honestly. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, you really wouldn't expect him to have any awareness or knowledge of that. Uh, he came from, he was a classical manager from a huge multinational textile manufacturing company called Burlington, right? Perhaps you've heard of their coats. They also make lots of life textiles and materials. <laughs> and so. But they're, they have nothing to do with entertainment or creative production. And Ray Kazar came in thinking the people who make video games are just a bunch of towel designers. In fact, he said that. He said, you're just a bunch of towel designers, you're a dime a dozen, you're all. we can get more of you if we need it. Nolan Bushnell really understood how to deal with management. Now, Nolan had his weaknesses too right? The fact is there were areas where Ray was much stronger in terms of connections and distribution and putting a product out uh, that no one really didn't have down. But no one knew how to foster creativity and deal with creative people. And Ray didn't have a clue.
0: During this time, the creativity of Atari was severely hamstrung, which almost killed the company. While digging their own proverbial grave, they actually hit a gold vein. And that was the 1979 decision of Atari executives to license a game called Space Invaders from a Japanese game manufacturer called Taito. This game had been a huge success in Japan and had the same effect in the United States. And Atari rode that wave by adding on other blockbuster games like Defender, Missile Command, and Asteroids. By 1980, the company held 75% of the market share for the home video game market, bringing in sales of over $2 billion by 1980. With this explosive success, it was hard to believe that something lurking around the corner would soon have Atari's screen seeing red. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. A series of calamitous events beat the once dominant company into the ground. First came the Commodore Computers. The backdrop of 1980s brought on new competition when Commodore started to push for home computers with their cleverly disparaging ads, why buy just a video game? With a picture of young kids looking studious in front of their home computing system, followed by other marketing phrases like, an investment that grows with your family's needs. Commodore's aggressive pricing and marketing was enough to give Atari a good beating. Then came the underwhelming sales of Pac-Man, which many regard as a turning point for the company. In 1982, Atari released the console port of Namco's smash hit Pac-Man, hoping to capture the same success that they had with Space Invaders. While there were only 10 million Atari consoles out there in the world, the company decided to manufacture 12 million Pac-Man cartridges, the thinking being that people might purchase more than one game, like when they buy several copies of an album or a movie. This was a decision that had Warner's fingerprints all over it, The company might have known music and movies, but it didn't have the same knowledge with the gaming industry. In the end, only 7 million copies were sold and many of the cartridges were returned because, well, the visual fidelity and the sound were pretty terrible. The company had managed to turn one of the most iconic video games of all time into a disaster. But the most infamous, deadliest blow to Atari was the release of the game E.T. the Extra-Terrestrial. A result of a deal between Warner and the film's director Steven Spielberg, the company's expectations of this game were so sky high. Atari had previously done its first movie based off Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was a huge success. And this time, Warner had paid somewhere in between 20 to 25 million to license the rights to ET in an effort to duplicate their success with Raiders. This process of negotiations took much longer than anyone expected. In fact, it took so many months of haggling back and forth that when the deal was finally struck, it only left Atari with five weeks to develop a game. Five weeks. For reference, the games of time typically took at least six months to develop, and the development of this game fell on the shoulders of Atari's superstar programmer, Howard.
1: I did Raiders, and Steven was happy enough with Raiders that uh, he requested that I do E.T. Of course, with E.T., that's a whole other story. The truth is, I was willing to do E.T., and I don't think anybody else in the world would have done it because the big thing about ET, as they say, was the small thing, which was the schedule. Whereas most games took at least six months to do. It took me six or seven months to do Yars. It took me about ten months to do Raiders of the Lost Ark. I was given five weeks to do ET, and nobody would have even attempted it. I was the only person willing to even try. You know, there's no way anybody is going to program a six-month project in five weeks. That doesn't happen, right? That just isn't going to happen. So it's not really a programming problem. What it is, is it's a design problem. And you don't design a typical game and, and do all the work that that takes. I mean, that takes more than five weeks just to figure out what the design is for a full-scale game like that. What you do is you design a game that can be done in five weeks. That's the secret to doing that. So what I had to do was use all of my experience and knowledge to figure out what's something that I can do in five weeks and how can I make a playable game out of that? Instead of thinking, what's a playable game and how can I do that in six months? It it reverses the way of thinking. So, but it's a design problem. So I sat down and also when I got the call that I was gonna do the game, This was a Tuesday afternoon. I was told to be at an executive terminal of the airport Thursday morning, ready to take a Learjet to go visit Steven Spielberg to present the final design for the game. So I was given a full day and a half to to design the game. But since I only have five weeks to do the game, I can't really afford to take much more than that anyway. Uh, It was a scramble from go.
0: Howard needed to make the deadline in time for the Christmas holiday season, which would be the biggest sales season for the year. Atari, already expecting to hit a home run, made sure to manufacture 5 million cartridges. But upon release in December 1982, it was reported that only 1.5 million cartridges were sold. What happened as a result of a rush job was poor execution and a bunch of very unimpressed gamers.
1: You gotta understand that when I first finished the game, there was a huge hoopla because it was done. And then you can't just download the game then, this is pre-internet. So that means the game had to go through a manufacturing cycle and packaging and distribution to stores. People have to go out and buy it and pick it up. So for months and months after I had finished the game, there was tremendous celebration and appreciation that the game was done. Spielberg, like he was the one who approved it he got a lot of money to like it though so that's a slightly biased opinion maybe but and i'm not i'm not saying it's his fault either i want to be very clear about that i don't blame spielberg for any of that but uh the thing is at, the next feedback i had on the game was that it was near the top of the sales charts so that also didn't look like a failure right? It was hard to see this as a failure. There wasn't any negative feedback until the beginning of the next year when returns started to come back and all that was going on. And then I started to hear things around the hallways like, hey, Howard, uh, we feel you really came through for us. We don't blame you at all. People would just sort of say that to me, people in suits who were walking through the building. And I would look at them and think, What the hell are you talking about? I I literally did not know what they were talking about. I was so, I was already working on some other things. I was very dissociated from the Holy Tea thing by that point because I had moved on. So there were hints and pieces of that. It didn't become the worst game of all time for another 10 years or so. It had, it took the internet to create that kind of uh, mystique. And that wouldn't happen for over a decade.
0: By 1983, Warner finally got around doing what Nolan had wanted to do for years and launched their next-generation game system called the Atari 5200 in hopes of riding the rapidly sinking ship. Instead, what followed was a particularly lame suite of games that further weakened the company. This left the door open for ColecoVision, who came out with the port of the popular and iconic Donkey Kong to clobber the former Titan. Through the combined failure of Pac-Man, E.T., and then the 5200 flop, Atari lost $536 million in 1983
1: alone. Atari was the fastest-growing company in the history of American business. And they were going to expand up the sales of of well over a billion, maybe nearing two billion. And within a year or two after that, lost hundreds of millions of dollars. It was the fastest rise and the fastest fall.
0: But it was what occurred in late 1983 that really sealed Atari's fate. Atari at that time was still the number one console maker in every market except Japan and a Japanese video game company called Nintendo was planning on releasing their programmable video game console that year, and they wanted to sell internationally. But because of their lack of confidence, they offered Atari a licensing deal where Atari would build and sell their system under their name, paying Nintendo a royalty fee. At that time, it seemed that Nintendo needed Atari more than Atari needed them. The deal had been signed at CES in 1983, However, things quickly went awry when Atari discovered that Nintendo also did a deal with their competitor Coleco to launch Donkey Kong with their computer system. This enraged Atari CEO Ray Kazar as he perceived that as betrayal, and Nintendo scrambled to try to make things right, but just as a deal might have had a chance, Ray was fired and pushed out completely, and the deal with Nintendo fell through the cracks. To think how things could have panned out so differently for Atari had this deal went through. But this became the final, ultimate misstep. Atari, already entrenched in mounting losses, poor game launches, lackluster reception of its new gaming console, and a missed opportunity with one of the industry's eventual titans, collapsed. In looking back, it's easy to pin ET as the sole reason for the fall of Atari or the big video game crash of 1983. But in the new industry, when you're innovating and pioneering into new territory, it's important to understand the different stages of a product's life cycle and really be able to step back and assess the market as competition enters. Atari wasn't prepared for the rise of personal computers, nor were they equipped to handle pressures from other consoles. Like so many other failed businesses, they were overtly content at the top. But truth be told, Atari's fatal flaw was likely having people with no video game experience running the show. Oftentimes people on top in corporate management hold the pedigree of CEOs or upper management as the ultimate qualification of overseeing a major enterprise where there are other important aspects that determine success. And in this case, having someone who understood the video gaming market, had Warner been able to work with Bushnell or even appoint someone similar, they might have been able to avoid the missteps like the Pac-Man fiasco and continue trailblazing instead of trailing behind.
1: It's easy to blame one thing, but the shorthand for what happened and where did this go down was it was the first product life cycle and nobody really knew what to do so they made a lot of mistakes they made mistakes legally they made mistakes production-wise they made mistakes in sales projections they made mistakes in entry with other products and there were good reasons why smart people made all these mistakes they weren't these weren't like clueless stupid people running around in the wilderness these were smart aggressive people well trained very experienced yet It was a brand new kind of industry that people did not understand yet. And whenever you have the first thing through, you know, the the first penguin theory, right? It's like all the penguins wanna go swimming and get the fish, but the first penguin gets eaten by the seals. And while the seals are eating that penguin, the other penguins run around and get all the stuff. When you're the first one in, you provide a service to everybody else, but you don't necessarily benefit from it. I did a documentary series called Once Upon Atari, you know, that's available on DVD. And it's a whole explanation of a lot of the things that went on. and Nolan Bushnell is in it. And at one point he says that uh, he says a simple explanation that is clear will always have more power in the world than a more complex one that is true.
0: Atari was started with the simplest game of all, where two friends could hit a virtual ball back and forth for hours. It was a smash hit that launched one of the biggest entertainment industries ever. But by 1983, Atari had filed for bankruptcy. It would be many years later, as Howard recounts, when people began to attribute the demise of Atari to the failure of E.T., It's a lesson in how quickly stories can be reduced to such simple ideas and how we forget the mismanagement along the way. Those blunders, they come back to haunt you. Just like Pac-Man being gobbled up by one of its ghosts. Special thanks to Howard Warsaw Scott for his contributions to this episode and sharing his story on the iconic Atari. And thank you for tuning in to this week's The Great Fail. Please make sure to visit our website at thegreatfail.com for behind the scene audio and video footage. If you like these episodes and want us to continue bringing you more, please subscribe to our newsletter because, well, not connecting with you would be our great fail. While you're at it, simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. The research on each episode is extensive, but none of them would be possible without the tireless efforts of researchers, writers, and reporters. They are all credited on thegreatfail.com under our show notes. Lastly, you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at thegreatfailpod, Pod. And please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on iTunes to show your support. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. And remember, folks, with great failure comes great liability.